Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Uh, that passage that Ali read for us before, it's a beautiful story, isn't it? I, I certainly find it a beautiful story, and a, a story that invites us to really imagine. And so one of the things we're going to be doing today, and um, it, it might be good, and I don't know if this is possible, but it might be good for people on Zoom to see the slides today. Uh, so there's going to be a slide on the screen, hopefully we'll see that in a second. Unfortunately, this isn't working for us, Anne, so I might have to get you to do it manually, if that's okay. Can we just go to the second slide? So today, when you see this slide here, it's a picture of the Samaritan woman. Whenever you see this picture, I'm going to be inviting you to put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman and imagine the story from her perspective. So this picture will come up time and time again. That's just to give you a bit of warning. So if we could go back to the first slide. So our story today takes place around a well. And if we're familiar with scripture, like the passage that Rowan read for us earlier, this story should seem a little bit familiar. It should make us think, where have I seen this before? Because many times in Scripture, men and women meet their future spouse at a well. Isaac's marriage to Rebekah is arranged around a well. Jacob meets his wife Rachel at a well, and Moses meets his wife Zipporah at a well. I'm not sure what was in the water in Israel, (laughs) but it must be pretty good. And last week, if you think back to last week, we heard how John the Baptist described Jesus as the bridegroom come to meet his bride, his people. And I find it really interesting that immediately following that story, we have Jesus going into Samaria and meeting a woman at a well. And I want to suggest that John intentionally frames this story in John chapter 4 as a courtship scene reminiscent of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Now, it's obviously not a courtship courtship in the sense that Jesus is looking for a woman to marry, but a courtship where Jesus, the bridegroom, invites the Samaritan woman and through her, the Samaritan people, to receive Jesus' gift of living water and to join Israel in worshipping the one God in spirit and in truth. So as we come to explore this wonderful story, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the richness of your word, for the ways in which your word captures our imagination and invites us to step into the shoes of people long ago, and yet at the same time, As we do that, we learn so much about ourselves and so much about who you are. 
Lord, may you be working in our lives by your spirit now. May you be changing us, forming us, and making us more like our Lord Jesus. Amen. Next slide. Thanks, Paul's slide. So it's the hottest part of the day. You've travelled miles from your village on foot carrying huge baskets. Your throat is parched, your muscles are weary, and you're feeling faint. You would have made this journey in the cool of the morning with the other women from your village, but they only shun you. Right at this moment, there is just one thing on your mind. Water. Life-giving, refreshing water to quench your thirst. Finally, you see a well on the horizon, but as you draw closer, you realise that something's amiss. There's a man sitting alone at the well. You feel a little bit uncomfortable about this, but your concern grows stronger when you realise he is a Jewish man. What on earth is he doing in Samaria? You awkwardly approach the well and untie your cisterns, preparing to lower the bucket, when the man shockingly speaks to you. Would you get me a drink also, he asks. For a moment, you are stunned. Did this Jew just speak to you? A Samaritan woman? And, and what? He wants you to give him a drink from your own vessel? Is he out of his mind? Next slide. This encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is scandalous. Jews and Samaritans were not meant to have anything to do with each other. And the woman understands how awkward this is. She says in verse 9, you're not supposed to ask me for a drink. And Jesus' disciples too come back and are shocked to find him chatting with this woman later in, in verse 27. Yet although people watching might cringe and hide their face in shame at the scandal of all this, though their conversation breaks all kinds of cultural and religious taboos, Jesus speaks life into the woman. He doesn't give attention to the taboos or the awkwardness. They don't seem to concern him. What Jesus sees is a woman thirsting for water, thirsting for love, and thirsting for God. Next slide. You've decided this is just all a bit too much. It's, it's too strange. You, you hurriedly draw the last of the water and turn to leave when the man says something that makes you pause. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, he says. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Wow, you think. Those are pretty brave words. Either this man is someone extraordinary who can actually fulfil that promise, or he's just a fool. Perhaps you should stay 
just a moment longer. Next slide. You know, there's something almost comical about this conversation, and it's a, a pattern that we see often in John's writing. Jesus and the Samaritan woman are both talking about water, yet they aren't talking about the same thing. The woman is thinking about wet, thirst-quenching, drinkable water. And she probably thinks Jesus has his own spring of water that he's found somewhere. But what's Jesus really talking about? Well, later in John chapter 7, we find out that living water is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says that he has living water to offer the woman, he's saying to her, I bear God's life-giving, body-animating, breath-renewing spirit, and I will give this living water to you. You crave water from this dirty old well? I offer you the endless water of creation, the breath of life the spirit of the living God. And once you drink of it, you will be satisfied forever. All right. If this man is serious and he knows where you can find a supply of flowing water, your village will never thirst again. You decide to play along for a moment. Sir, I would like to drink from this well. Where can I find this water? But rather than answering your question, the man's next words strike at your very heart. Go, call your husband and come back. Oof. Images flash through your mind of your five husbands of good times and horrid ones, of hurtful words and bitter fighting and loveless relationships. Feeling suddenly numb, your face betraying the pain, you simply mutter, I, I have no husband. Historically, it's been assumed that this Samaritan woman was a promiscuous woman who lived a life of unfaithfulness. But there's actually nothing in the text that directly suggests that. There are many possible reasons for her chequered history. But Jesus isn't interested in attributing blame. Rather, the focus is on a woman whose life is littered with broken relationships. Perhaps, perhaps the fact that she's living with a man now who is not her husband suggests she's afraid of being hurt again or afraid of messing up again. Perhaps she's forgotten how to trust, forgotten what it means to truly love or be loved. And this is one reason why the framing of this passage as a courtship scene is so powerful, I think. For a woman who only knows the pain of broken relationships... For a woman whose marital life has been mostly disappointment, Jesus, this foreigner, the bridegroom of God, steps into her life and with compassion courts her at the well. And in doing so, he says to her, I can offer you the love you are thirsting for. 
I will reach through the cultural taboos, putting my own reputation at stake to be to you like the husband you have never had. I offer you a love that will be forever faithful and that will never disappoint. You are stunned. How could he possibly know all this? But it's not just his words that confuse you, it's, it's the look in his eyes as well. There's no condemnation, just compassion. Thoughts muddle your mind for a moment before it, it all clicks. Of course, this man must be a prophet from God. But, but if that's true, he, he must be lost. A Jewish prophet wouldn't come to Samaria. You don't even worship in the same place or in the same way. You don't even use the same scriptures. And even if you did believe him, there's, there's nothing you could do about it. You're not allowed in the temple of Jerusalem. You couldn't follow this prophet even if you wanted to. The final movement in this encounter reveals that Jesus' words have really impacted the woman. It's like a flame of hope has arisen in her heart. The penny is starting to drop that maybe this living water he offers is, is more wonderful than she could possibly imagine. But there's still a giant rift in the way. She is still a Samaritan. He is still a Jew. Look at what she says in verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. The divide between Jesus and the woman is as deep as the valley between two mountains. Even if she wanted to receive his living water, she can't follow where he will go. How can this woman ever worship with Jesus when the divide is so great? But once again, Jesus' response surprises her. He says, these mountains don't matter anymore because from now on, people will worship in spirit and in truth. And in a flash, the rift between Jesus and the woman disappears. With Jesus' gift of living water, the Spirit of God is poured out on his bride, his people, so that they can worship God whenever and wherever they might be. And because this living water is, is freely given to people of all nations, classes, castes and backgrounds, all the rifts and valleys that separate people from God and from each other are broken down. The valleys are filled in and the mountains brought low. Samaritan and Jew, woman and man, the culturally shunned and the culturally accepted can all drink from the same well by the same spirit. You are bursting with delight to think that for so long you have longed to be loved and accepted by your own people. And yet, it's a Jewish man 
a kind, compassionate man who has loved you enough to put aside cultural taboos and enter into your lonely world. You feel satisfied, whole, hopeful. Your thirst is long forgotten and you feel like water is bubbling over in your heart. You have to tell the others. Forget their hateful looks. Forget their cruel words. They need to know about this man. The Messiah of the Jews is here. But he's here for us too. You ask Jesus to wait at the well and run off with renewed energy to tell your village, come, I have found living water. Next slide. This is a profound, life-changing encounter for the woman. With compassion and with truth, Jesus offers life to her. But it's also a world-changing encounter. The bridegroom comes to invite Samaria to join with Israel in being his bride. And the key truth in this story that makes all of this possible are Jesus' words, from now on, God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit and in truth means that God has come to our mountain just as he did for the Samaritan woman. He has broken through the cultural taboos of God entering into humanity. He has been shamed for us, broken for us, mocked and abandoned for us. And he's risked all of that to offer us living water. And so to worship in spirit and in truth means that we have drunk from Jesus well and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through this gift, worship is transformed. But how? Well, let me suggest three, three thoughts. Firstly, to worship in spirit and in truth means that the pathway to God has been cleared for us. Like the Samaritan woman, there's all kinds of rubble that builds up on the path between us and God during our lives. I was chatting to an Aboriginal man in in January who told me that he'd often been to church during his life looking for answers, but had always been given something to read or, or, or told a passage to go and read. The problem was he was illiterate, but he was too embarrassed to tell anyone. I suspect he felt a bit like he was stuck on one mountain while God was over there on another with a huge gulf between them. Maybe you felt like that sometimes too. Maybe you feel it now. Guilt or shame, grief or pain that overwhelms, anger with God, Frustration, perhaps, or just so flat out and stretched for time that it feels like God is a hundred miles away and you couldn't get to him even if you wanted to. The beauty of Jesus' words today are that those 
are all actually false barriers, illusions that we create or that others create for us or that circumstances put in our way. Uh, They feel real. They hurt like they are real. They really do get in the way. But Jesus is not on another mountain. He has crossed over and come to your lonely mountain even if nobody else would. Worship in spirit and in truth is not a a desperate search for a glimpse or an experience of God, but a response of gratitude because Jesus has found us. He has wed himself to us despite our failings, our backgrounds, our culture or ethnicity, our class or social status. And so worship is a response to God's grace. Secondly, to to worship in spirit and in truth means that taboos are broken through and the outcast welcomed in because worship of God is open to all. Jesus didn't stand on the border of Samaria and Judea and call out for the Samaritan woman to come to him. He was the one who broke through the cultural taboos. He was the one who crossed the valley. He was the one who risked reputation and shame to show love to her. If we believe that all are welcome to drink from Jesus' well of living water, what mountains will we cross to help quench other people's thirst? Would we be willing to listen to others, genuinely listen, to enter into their world with commitment so that they might drink from Jesus' well? Would we be willing to worship with people from other cultures and backgrounds even if that worship looked quite different to what we were used to or comfortable with? Worship in spirit and in truth is to worship together as one people who have drunk from the same well. And and that means that our experience of gathered worship is not about me. Worship is God-focused but it's also an act of serving one another. We serve one another as we recognise that we are each different and what might help me worship God might not always be helpful for everyone else. Likewise, what I find mundane might be profoundly helpful for others. Spirit and truth worship is self-sacrificial where we seek to help each other grow closer to God. I wonder what it would look like if we were all to gather each week with the intention, today, I'm going to go out of my way to help others worship God. Finally, to worship in spirit and in truth means that we respond to God from our inmost being. And that's quite a shift from the Jewish understanding of worship at the time. In the Old Testament, worship was often an external act. It was an act of ritual or ceremony that didn't necessarily match with the status of a person's heart. But Jesus' spirit and truth worship 
begins with God acting upon us and moving us by his spirit. God initiates worship. And so when we hear stories like this one today and are blown away by the grace of Jesus, God's living water has first welled up within us. When we're seeking to honour God in our work or delight in him in our creativity and play, that's a response to God's love and grace towards us. When the woman at the well runs to tell everyone at her village what Jesus has said and done, God has changed her heart first. And that means that our first and foremost act of worship is simply to be still and to know that God is God. To look to Jesus that we might know the true God as he is and be moved to worship by his spirit. So I wonder, how is God acting upon you now as we hear from his word? Is there a thought that has compelled you tonight? An emotion that has gripped you? A part of life that has been confronted? A comfort you've been given? A picture or an image that has stuck with you? or something you're itching to do in response. How about we pray? Lord God, we're reminded in this story again how you know us. You know us so deeply, everything about us. Everything is laid bare before you. And you have come to our mountains still, to our lonely mountains to offer us your living water. Lord, may you teach us to continue to serve one another as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you that we have been welcomed into your family as well. Amen.